Good morning. Good morning, everyone. So wonderful to see those of you here in the sanctuary, and thank you to those of you who are joining us online. Thank you, worship team, for leading us um, in praise. And what a comfort it is to sing even old familiars like Amazing Grace, reminding ourselves what God has done for us. And we often need that reminder because, unfortunately, life can be hard. And I'm sorry if you haven't quite figured that out yet, and I'm spoiling it for you, but the truth is <laughs> that life can be hard. And it seems, no, it seems the older, the older we seem to get, the more responsibilities we have, the harder it seems to get, the more problems come. But even though that's true, life is full of joy. There's joy, there's pleasure to enjoy a, a sunny day, God's grace and goodness to us, but nonetheless, Life can be very difficult. And I have some bad news for you. If you decide to follow Christ, that you're going to become a Christian, pursue God, live a a life that honors God, that glorifies Him, know Jesus, then it doesn't mean that life gets easy. In fact, in many ways, it's more difficult because you have all the problems everyone else has, but on top of that, God calls His people to live in a radically different way from everyone else around them. The life of faith will be difficult. It will look crazy to those who are not believers. But that's why I want to talk about good news today. And that good news is that God shows us his faithfulness, even in the midst of that hard life. And his faithfulness is even so much greater than the faith that we show in him. We can live a life that's full of joy and praise because of his faithfulness. And how do we do that? Well, The book of Ezra is going to show us how. If you remember, we are looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. These books are back in the Old Testament. They're talking about God when he was relating to his people, the Israelites. He was revealing himself to them. He had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them into a promised land. Unfortunately, though, they they didn't live for him. They decided to worship other gods, reject what God had told them. And they ended up in exile for 70 years. But these books we're looking at are now that time is over, and now God's people are coming back to the promised land. We're looking at the first group of these people to come back. These books tell us about three groups. We're looking at the first one around the year 538 BC and after that. The king over the empire that was ruling at the time, Persia, King Cyrus, gave permission, a decree. The Jews could return to the promised land. They could rebuild the temple. And so two of their leaders, named Zerubbabel and Jeshua, they lead the people back. They get there. They're afraid of everyone else around them, but they decide, no, we need to start worshiping God. They build an altar. They start to rebuild the temple. They lay a foundation. They have a loud celebration, and their neighbors notice. And these opponents come, and they first try to be a little sneaky. They ask if they can help so they can have influence and The Israelites realize, no, these people are not committed to God, so they don't let them help rebuild. And so then those people stop them from doing what God had called them to do. And they stop working on the temple for almost 16 years. And after this 16-year gap, we pick up with our passage today, Ezra 5 and 6. Now, this is a longer passage that's going to show us about faith and faithfulness. And since it's a longer one, I'm not going to read it at the beginning. So before we look at God's word, Let's have a time of prayer. Lord, we know that life can be difficult and challenging. 
we have struggles and trials in our life that remind us of that every day. But God, we also know that you have called us to act in faith. You have called us to live for you. God, give us the strength to do that. Show us how that's possible because you reveal, you show your faithfulness to us in so many ways. Help us to see that today in your word. Lead us, O Lord, to respond, live a life of joyful praise because of your faithfulness to us. I pray that we may see clearly what you are doing in this passage. May we see you, not the people, the events per se happening, but may we see you in this text, that you may increase, God, that we may know you more and praise you more for what you do, what you did for the Israelites, and for what you do for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. So we're looking at these two chapters. These two chapters are going to show us about our faith, how we respond to God, and how God responds to us, his faithfulness. So let's start by talking about our faith. And what God says about our faith is that we are called to act in faith. God calls us to act in faith. That's what chapter 5 is going to show us, God's people acting in the faith that God has asked them to. It's not that God just works and we sit back and do nothing and let God do everything. He calls us to act. He works through us. He calls us to action. The first two verses we actually looked at last week. You were here, you watched it, but it's talking about God's people. The work has been stopped for 16 years, and this is what the word says. It says, now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, they prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Jozadak, they arose. They began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. The prophets of God were with them, supporting them. The work had been stopped, but God's prophets said, no, God calls us to act. He wants us to rebuild this temple. And so the leader said, yes, you're right. They arose. They set to work rebuilding the temple. It's a call to us to the same. We talked about this at the end of last week, that we are called to respond when God's word says. In this case, we're seeing we are called to act. Yes, we know if we're followers of Christ that in in many ways our life here is temporary. We know that Jesus will one day return to right wrongs, but obeying God now still matters. He's given us his word that tells us how we're to live for him. He calls us to act accordingly. So the people do act. They say, yes, we are going to rebuild the temple. But then we see something familiar. Some officials show up with some questions. Verse 3 and 4 say, at the same time, Tatanai, the governor of that province beyond the river, another person named Shethar Bazanai, associates, they came to them. They spoke to them this way. They said, who gave you a decree to build this house, to finish this structure? And they also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? Now, the difference this time is these officials seem a little bit more neutral. They're just making a routine inquiry. They're asking them, who authorized, who gave you permission, who said that you could rebuild this temple? Remember, nothing had happened there for 16 years. If you saw a building next to you that nobody did anything for 16 years, and then a crowd of people starts, shows up, starts working on it, you may have some questions about that. But it also could be an attempt to intimidate them. Maybe their neighbor said, uh-oh, here they go again. Let's call the government officials here to make them stop. 
we've heard this is the time of a new king is in power. And when a new king's in power, it's an uncertain time. And so the officials have some questions about what's going on. Most translations say the officials ask, what are the names of the men? Who is it who is building this building? They need to ask for names because if what they're doing is wrong, there will be consequences. But look at this amazing verse five. Verse five says, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius the king and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. The eye of God was on them. God was watching over his people. And so they weren't prevented. They didn't have to stop. They didn't have to cease building the temple. They were able to continue to work while the case was ongoing. And this isn't modern day. You can type out an email, send it over to the king. They had to write the letter. They had to deliver the letter, get a response and have it come back. It would have taken at least four to five months at the shortest period of time. But God in his grace allowed them to be able to work then. We see there's a higher authority over this temple rebuilding. Yes, they're checking with the king, the emperor, to make sure it's okay. But there's someone else in charge here. God's watchful providence was over his people. And you know what? God still, his eye is on us today. In this case, he used the decision-making of this pagan official. This guy, Tatanai, he doesn't worship God. He doesn't know God. But he says, okay, I see what you're doing. It's okay. You can keep building, but let me check and I'll be back with you. But God even used that little decision he made to let his work continue. The author of this book is making it clear. All credit goes to God's sovereign control. Even as his people are showing faith, they're doing what God has said. God is faithful to them. And friends, God is faithful to us too. He sees you and knows you. He knows what we're going through. He acts on our behalf. This idea of God's eye on us, it shows up elsewhere in scripture. In Psalm 33, it says, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who worship him. His eye is on those who hope in his steadfast love. He sees us. Even when we are opposed, God calls us to act in this faith because he knows what is going on. He has a plan and a purpose in what we are going through. One pastor named James Hamilton put it this way. He said, for 2,000 years now, the church has faced opposition and persecution, but the gates of hell have not prevailed against the church. God will accomplish his purposes. The opposition to the church will not succeed. God will build his church. That's what we just said. I'm very thankful Tom brought that up. Part of our mission here is we want to build Christ church here in this community, but God is going to do that work. He calls us to act in faith, but God is going to do it. His eyes on us. He sees what is happening. He brings about his purposes. Well, for the Israelites though, they, they don't know what's going to happen. And so in the rest of chapter five, we have another example of a very formal Persian letter, which is this official writing a letter to the king asking about what's going on. Now, if you remember, we talked last week, we read another one of these letters and that time it didn't go so well. God's people had to stop work that they were doing. So what's going to happen this time? 
I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to jump around a few places. Um, In verse 8, to start, they're saying in the letter, they say, Be it known to the king, we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It's being built with huge stones. Timber is laid in the walls. The work goes on diligently. It prospers in their hands. The Persians use a respectful title for God. They call him the great God because they tried to respect other religions and faiths. They wanted their people in their empire to be happy. But they note something special about this temple. They say the work goes on diligently. It prospers. It progresses rapidly in the hands of these people. What they're doing is going really well. And it's prospering because they're acting in faith. They're doing what God has said. They're doing what God told them to do And they're pursuing it with all diligence. It reminds me of what the book of Psalms tells us. Psalm tells the very first one, blessed is the man or or blessed is the woman. Blessed is the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. They don't stand in the way of sinners. They don't sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Here it is, in all that he does, this person who meditates on God's word, in all that he does, he prospers. What this is talking about, what we see in our text, is if we are committed to God, committed to his purposes, then God will make his purposes prosper. This doesn't mean that if I read the Bible every day, then God will bless whatever I'm doing. It's not saying that, but it's saying if we are pursuing the course that God has called us to, and it's a course that honors God, then he will make that prosper for his glory. The next couple verses in the letter explain the situation that we already know. The people came, they're asking some questions, but the last few verses, 11 through 17, are the Israelites' response to these questions. And I would like to read these. Let's start with verses 11 and 12. This was their reply to us. They said, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. We are rebuilding the house, the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them Into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, he destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. So when they're asked who they are, the people present themselves as servants of the God of all of heaven and earth. Could have said, we're Israelite people. This is our temple we worship. We'd like to rebuild it. But they're honest about who they are. They say, we are servants of the God who's over all things. And we are continuing the work that he has been doing in this temple. Remember, this is a very small group of people in the grand scheme of things. But they know that God has chosen them to be his servants, to do his will. So yes, they're honest about who they are. This is who we are. They don't try to hide their purpose. And in this case, this Persian official seems to appreciate their honesty. Remember, he said that they could keep doing what they're doing and he would check out their story. In the next verse, verse 12 that that we read there, they summarize what had happened to their people. They had a land, but because their fathers, their ancestors rejected God, they provoked his anger and wrath. 
We can read about things like this in First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles. Here's one passage there saying the same thing. It says they kept mocking the messengers of God. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath, the anger of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy and it was too late. And so therefore he, God, brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. He had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He goes on to say, he gave them all into his hand, all the vessels of the house of God, everything that was in God's temple, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king and his princes, All these Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, brought back to Babylon. This is the response that God's people have when they're asked what they're doing. They're saying, this is something that happened in our past. We messed up terribly, and our lack of faith had a terrible result. Our temple was destroyed. We lost our land, and we are not making the same mistake again. Now we are building God's temple, being committed to him. It's reminding us that God is sovereign. He is in control. But the decisions that we make do impact our history and impact the lives of those around us. Now, how that exactly works, in many ways, that's a mystery to us. How God's plan fits with the decisions that we make. I'm not going to give you the answer to, oh, I know exactly how that works. No, no. But I do know that God's purposes are fulfilled and that nothing happens outside of his command and control. But at the same time, he does hold us accountable for our choices. The Israelites said, we rejected God in the past and we suffered the consequences for that decision. We went into exile. Our temple was destroyed. It seems that finally, after all these years, they're understanding who God is. They've gotten their theology, their knowledge of who God is and who they are. They finally have that right. They know this is who God is. He loves us, is gracious to us, but he doesn't let us walk all over him. He's doing something in our lives. And they know why what happened to them happened. We rejected him, so we lost our promised land. But then they tell what what they're doing right now, verses 13 through 15. They say, however, in the first year of Cyrus, when he was king over Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels, articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem, brought into the temple of Babylon. These Cyrus the king took out of the temple. They were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, who he had made governor. And he, Cyrus, said to him, take these vessels, go, put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem. Let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. So they decide to kind of do a strategy their opponents did before. They say, go back to the record, check the log, check check what happened before. There was a decree issued by the very first Persian emperor, King Cyrus. And we read this decree earlier in the book. In the very first chapter of Ezra, this is what led them to come back to the promised land. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild 
the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. The Israelites say, this is what we're doing. They even provide some detailed information. They say, this was the person who received this charge. They gathered all the articles, utensils, cups that were used in temple worship. All these things were together to be returned. You can check this for accuracy. Verses 16 through 17 wrap up the letter. They say this person, Shesbazar, laid the foundation. And from that time until now, this temple has been in building. And it is not yet finished. And so this Persian official, Tatanai, he writes and he says, Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for rebuilding this house of God in Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure in this manner. They say there was a temple. It had been started by a man named Sheshbazar, but it's going to be finished by this guy named Zerubbabel. And they use the phrase, if it seems good, if it pleased the king, check out this report, see if it's true. What's kind of funny about this is if you remember last week, this was exactly what their enemies did. Their enemies say, if you look at the record, you'll see this is a rebellious people, so you should stop them from building the temple. The Israelites said, okay, we see that. Well, if you look at the record, you'll see we were told we can build this temple. They asked for the king's pleasure. They asked for his decision. They challenge him to look, examine the truth for himself. They tell him the truth because they know the truth will be found out. They don't have to lie. They can just tell what is true and let the king discover it. They're acting in faith and trust. This passage is showing us what God can accomplish through people who trust in him to provide. They don't get stuck on what they don't have. They move forward in faith and trust. It's not an ideal situation, but God has called us to act in faith in this moment. And that's what we are going to do. Now, this may sound like a far situation that's not related to us. So let's try for a moment to put ourselves in their shoes. They are a small group of people, a tiny part of this vast empire. And they've just moved to this land. They're surrounded by people who don't like them. And even though they're surrounded by all these others, they act in faith. They do what God has said. They're starting to work in the temple. And then their worst nightmare starts to come true. This government official shows up and says, what are you doing over here? They could lie. They could try to come up with some story. They could fight their way through. They say, no, we're going to tell the truth. We're here because we were told we could rebuild our temple. And I says, well, I'm going to need your names and I'm going to have to send this back to my higher ups and see what they have to say. So I imagine them taking a deep breath. They're like, all right, here's our names. We're telling you that we had a decree in order that we could do this. You go ahead. Now, I imagine that they realized how dangerous this was because if they made that search and they didn't find it or if somebody hit it or somebody had destroyed that order, then all their names are there and punishment would be coming. Maybe there were some who felt very pessimistic about what God could do here. This is just like what happened before. They're going to stop us again from building this temple. But still, most people seem to act in faith. And remember, God allowed them to keep working. They said, maybe they're going to come and stop us. But until they do that, we're going to keep working on the temple. We're going to trust God to do what he has told us and what his word has said. They did not let his work on the temple stop. So friends, let me ask us, what has God 
challenged us to do? What has he called us to do in his word? Earlier, Tom was sharing about how God has called us to share his good news with others. The way, one way we practice that is by having intentional prayer time for 30 days for somebody with this, that who's your one. But God has called us to share his word. That's something he's challenged us to do. Are we acting in faith in that? Are we praying for opportunities to share with others? God's also challenged us, called us to love others, to show grace to others, to serve others, even when it's inconvenient for ourselves. I don't like that person, what they do, what they stand for, but God has called me to love them and show grace to them. Are we responding to that call of God? Are we acting in faith in that? God's also called us to grow, to know him more, to have a deeper relationship with him. And say, well, you know, it's a, it's a pandemic. It's a really confusing time. I just need to, to sit back and, and, and then wait till all this blows over. No, no, God calls us to grow even now. Are we taking that challenge? Are we growing? Is our relationship with God developing and deepening during this time? God is calling us to act in faith. I don't know what area you feel that you need to grow in or that area you feel God has called you to act in. I'll leave that between you and him. But I challenge you to think through his word and think through how has God called me to respond in faith. And the reason I should do that is because I know something about God. And as you've seen on the screen, that's God will show us his faithfulness. He calls me to act in faith, but he's going to show me his faithfulness in every situation. Chapter 6 that we're rolling into now, a reply comes from the king. And it's just an incredible letter. So I'm actually going to read the whole letter. I may skip a couple parts in the middle, but I'm going to read 6, 1 through 12. And we'll see what the king says. Well, then Darius the king made a decree. A search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ekbana, the citadel in the province of Medea, there was a scroll found and on which this was written. It was a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. He's really building the suspense. What did that decree say? It said, let the house be rebuilt. The place where sacrifices were offered, let its foundations be retained. He gives the, the height that the temple supposed to have. And in the middle of verse four, he says something else. He says, let the cost be paid from the royal treasury and let the gold and silver vessels, the articles of the house of God that Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple, let those be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. So Darius finds this, and in verse 6, he gives his conclusion. He says, Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethbazar, Bazanai, your associates, those governors who are in that province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews, the elders of the Jews, rebuild this house of God on its site. But that's not all he says. In verse 8, he says, Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full, without delay, from the royal revenue, the tribute of your province, the province beyond the river. 
And whatever is needed, he gives a list of animals and things they need for sacrifices. He says, let that be given to them day by day without fail so that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven. Pray for the life of the king and his sons. And he even says some more. He says, also I make a decree, if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house. He shall be impaled on it. His house shall be made a dunghill. And may the God who caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this, or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done with all diligence. What an incredible letter showing God's faithfulness. They sent this and the king said exactly what they said would be there. The king made a decree. He issued the order. He wanted to find out the truth. He was concerned that maybe these people were rebelling against him. But if not, he wanted to help them if he could. And they found in the king's summer home a record a memorandum, a copy of decrees. It's mostly the same as the one we read earlier. It includes the details the Jews mentioned. They said Nebuchadnezzar took some articles, some utensils, some cups out of the temple, and Cyrus said we could have those back, and they find that exact thing. Yes, he did say that. And King Darius confirms the Jews can continue their work because the Persians often like to rebuild religious sites. But there's something else that shows up here when they do their research. They find something that they overlooked before because Cyrus says in his decree that the cost is to be paid from the royal treasury. He says the Persians are going to help pay for this project. That was something they didn't know before. The tables are now completely turned on these opponents of God's people. He says, first, the opposition needs to stop in verse 6. He says, keep away, stay away, break off, do not interfere, do not disturb them, let the work alone. The Israelites are allowed to rebuild the temple where it was before. But not only that, but Darius tells the people who are there, these locals, these officials, the people who tried to stop them, he tells them, and you guys have to pay for what's going on there too. The taxes, the revenue that you collect, you would send to me. Don't send them to me. Use them to build this temple for these people that you hate. Do that. And they were to provide animals for their sacrifices. (laughs) None of this was known before to the Israelites or to these others. But because these people tried to stop what God was doing, instead they ended up giving these people more money. The very opposite of what they were trying to do. In many ways, this is a fulfillment of what God's prophets were saying. One of them who was speaking now was named Haggai, and he said this, speaking for God, God said, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. I will fill this house, this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. In many ways, that's what's happening here. Haggai probably said that. They're like, yeah, right, Haggai. You're telling me that other people are going to bring treasures into God's house. That's not going to happen. And then what happens? Exactly that. They're told to help pay to rebuild the temple. God can turn the efforts of the enemy, of our opponents, anyone trying to stop us from living for God, he can turn that for his glory. As Pastor Hamilton said, he said, there is no setback, no failure, no tragedy, no disappointment, no defeat that God cannot use to bless you. 
Now, again, when we talk about this, we're talking about God's purposes, not saying that everything in our life is going to be wonderful and great, but it's saying that God shows his faithfulness to us in the most surprising ways. And he can take a bad, terrible situation and he can turn it into a glorious good. Now, that might not happen right away. It might be a long, difficult road to get there. Remember that they were stopped from building for 16 years. It looked like God had abandoned them. But then something changed. The only condition the king gives for building this and giving this support is he asked the Jews to pray for him and to pray for his family. And I'm sure they were like, "Uh, yes, yeah, okay, we'll we'll, we'll do that. Um, And this is interesting because it's typical of what the kings did at the time, especially the Persians. They would rebuild all these different temples and they'd ask the followers of that God to pray for them. I got another quote from a historical document. This was Cyrus who told them to rebuild it. And in a document we have of Cyrus, he talks about some uh, different gods, but he says something similar. He says, may all the gods who I have resettled in their sacred cities, may they ask daily gods, Bel and Nebo, may they ask for a long life for me. May they recommend me to him. So this King Darius or that guy Cyrus, they didn't really care about the God of Israel, but they wanted to spread out, cover all their bases and have all these people praying to all these different gods for them. It's a selfish motive, but in this case, God uses that for his glory. Darius just wanted good things for himself, but God says, well, I'll take that desire and I'll rebuild the temple for my people. And Darius wraps up the letter by pronouncing judgment on those who would disobey this ruling or attack this temple. They'll be impaled or hanged. Their house will be made into a dunghill or a pile of rubble. He says God himself will do this. He makes a claim about God's power. He's not worshiping him, but he still feared and respected him and maybe had some Jews helping him with this letter. Well, that was what the letter said. What happened? Did God's faithfulness come through for the people? Well, let's look at verses 13 through 15. It says, then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, that governor of the province beyond the river, that other guy, Shethbazar, Bonsai, their associates, they did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. The elders of the Jews built. They prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, son of Iddo. And they finished their building by decree of the God of Israel By decree of those Persian kings, Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, king of Persia, this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. What the king ordered came to pass. They did it with all diligence quickly and at once. God used these Persian kings to rebuild his temple. He worked everything together for his purposes. It's what he always does, even in our lives. And the Jews prospered. They were successful in it. They learned how to live for God. They said, wow, these prophets were right in what they were saying. We should listen to God. We should live for him because God has shown his faithfulness to us. Reminds me of what Joshua is told. He's told that the book of the law should not depart from your mouth. You should meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. If you do that, you will make your way prosperous. If you do that, then you will have good success. He's saying, Joshua, you will be successful in what God has called you to do. And in our case, we saw these people were successful in rebuilding the temple because they trusted in God. 
This only happened through those prophets, preaching to them, speaking to them, telling them, this is what God's word says. This is the action he calls us to take in faith. I thought I'd put an example of one of their prophecies that they gave. The one Zechariah said, the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of your leaders, Zerubbabel, had laid the foundation of the house. And even though it's been 16 years, his hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So it's interesting. The books of the Bible aren't 100% in chronological order, one before another. They're spread out often by the type of book they are. But here we see, as we see before what happened, if we want to look at the prophecies of Haggai, Zechariah, we could read their books. We'd read things like this. And now back in Ezra, we see, yes, it happened just as they said. The temple was rebuilt. The people were encouraged by God's word, the knowledge of his support. And so they gave credit to God. Verse 14 had said that the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet Zechariah the son of Iddo, they finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And then I read something fun about this verse, how they did it in translation. You'll see on the screen that I underlined decree or decree. It's the same word, but when they wrote in the language of Hebrew or Aramaic, they didn't put vowels in the letters. They just wrote consonants. And so they didn't put vowels when they originally wrote it. But about a thousand years ago, the Jewish scribes started adding vowels back in to it to help make the meaning a bit more clear. And so if you look at the Hebrew, or it's technically the Aramaic now of this verse, you'll see that the word decree and decree, it's the same consonants, but they change the vowels. The reason they change the vowels is to say there's a difference between God's decree and between the decree of what these kings says. God decreed. He's the reason why it actually happened. He worked through these kings to make his temple be rebuilt. God's decree is greater than the kings. He is the real influence behind this event. Yes, the people showed faith. Yes, these kings made decisions, but God was behind it all. And so after almost 20 years, after they started building it, the temple is finally finished sometime around the year 515 or 516 B.C., almost exactly 70 years after the first temple was destroyed. This is probably the most significant event in the life of these people. They have lived away in exile. They've never seen this promised land. They've never worshiped God the way his word said. But now they can worship him again. Now the community has been restored. And remember how important this temple is. This is a temple where they would worship God for hundreds of years. This is a temple that later would be renovated and expanded by another king named Herod. And this is the temple that Jesus Christ himself would come to. Now this temple is built. We see in this passage that God is faithful to do his work. He will do his purposes. He did it for God's people then. He does it for God's people, the church. Now he will build his church. And he is faithful to us as well. We can trust him, see our place in this role, the role we play in this play, this production that God is doing to display his glory to the world. One scholar, Mervyn Brenman, put it this way, said, the author here is displaying a holy enthusiasm that all Christians should share when they realize they are a part of God's plan to fulfill his kingdom. 
Do we realize that? I think sometimes we get wrapped up in our own lives and we see I'm struggling with this and this and this, which is true. And I'm not belittling that at all. But we are also a part of God's plan to fulfill his kingdom and role. And we play some small part in that grander tapestry of what he is doing in creation. And this God always does what is right. The New Testament tells us that God is faithful. And by him, we were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me ask you, do you know him? Do you know this God who is faithful to us? The greatest way he showed his faithfulness. This is incredible how he works through this to build his temple. Don't get me wrong. But the greatest way he showed his faithfulness was by sending his son. That he himself took on human flesh and lived here for us, died to pay for us so we could be restored to God. If we know him, then he continues that faithfulness. He continues to act in faithfulness to us. If God has saved us, he will not abandon us. No matter what we think we've gone through or experienced, he is there with us. Look, friends, the truth is I don't know everything that you're going through, everything that you've experienced, even in the past week or month or year. I don't know everything that you've gone through, every struggle that you've encountered. I don't know that. But what I do know is that God is faithful. And I hope as you read this story, you see that as God was faithful to his people then, he will be faithful to us now. And when God is faithful to us, the response he calls us to is joyful praise. Joyful praise. That's the only appropriate response. God has been faithful to me. Now I will respond in praise. I'm not going to read all the verses here, but I'm going to read a couple. I'm going to start with verse 16. It says, The people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, the rest of the returned exiles, they celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. It tells us a bit about the celebration. And then in verse 19, it says, After that, on the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. They celebrate the feast of Passover. And we'd actually have read about this a little last week. We were told that this Passover meal was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And finally, we read that they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful, had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Now the people celebrate. They celebrate the good times. They dedicate the temple with joy, a unity of purpose. It's a reminder for us to take the time to celebrate when God has shown us his faithfulness. If we're in a rough situation, there's nothing wrong with taking time to mourn. But when God shows his faithfulness to us, we need to celebrate that as well. We are a community of his people. We can celebrate, praise him for what he has done in and through us. We should tell others, how has God been faithful to us? We, of course, should share with one another our burdens, our struggles, and concerns. We definitely should do that. But we should also take the time to... Tell others the good things that God has done for us. Celebrate with joy his faithfulness to us. Here the people offer sacrifices in the same way the first king Solomon did, or the first king to have a temple, Solomon. When he built his temple, they offer sacrifices in the same way. 
They even offer sacrifices for all 12 tribes of Israel. All 12 tribes aren't there, but they're there in spirit. They're represented among God's people. They install, they assign priests to worship, to lead the temple sacrifices. They obey God in knowing how he wanted his temple to be run. It was important for them to have these sacrifices again because of what sacrifices represented for them. A sacrifice represented an animal dying to pay for the sin that separated them from God. But what we know now is that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Our sacrifice is Jesus Christ. Well, speaking of Passover, the Israelites then celebrate Passover. The text returns to the language of Hebrew to celebrate this feast. This was a feast remembering that before God brought his people out in slavery, he brought judgment on the land of Egypt. He killed every firstborn. But the people of Israel put blood on their doorpost. And so God's spirit of death passed over those houses. And this happened just a few weeks after that dedication. They finished just in time to celebrate Passover. It may have been the first time that many of those people who were there ever celebrated that feast in their lifetime. And we talked before in verse 21 that others joined their celebration. It wasn't just the people who returned, but everyone who had separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land so they could worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So not just the people who came back, but others said, we want to be a part of this people. Their God helps them. He is faithful to them. We talked before, they told others they couldn't help, but it was because they were not committed to God. Now they see and they say, yes, we want to join this celebration. So they separated themselves from uncleanness and sin. They said, we're not going to worship other gods. We're going to worship the Lord alone. They repented or turned away from sin and they sought the Lord. They turned toward him in faith and trust. And friends, whether you're here in the sanctuary or watching online, that is an invitation for you too to respond the way these people did when they see what this God does for his people, that he is faithful to them in all situations. Even when things look dark, he still works for his glory and purposes. The call is we are going to reject sin and we're going to have faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, will you turn from sin? Will you put your faith in Christ? Will you join God's people in this celebration of joy? I pray, I hope that you'll talk to someone about that, how you can join that celebration. When we have a right relationship with God, when we're wholly set apart for him, then we can worship him with joy. Not because of what we've done or something good in us, but because of what he has done. And that's why the last verse tells us twice that they're celebrating with joy. They kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. This was the feast that came after Passover. And so for seven days, they are joyful, praising God for helping them rebuild the temple. God had fulfilled his promises. He had answered their prayers. They responded with joy. As Psalm 92 says, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. They even talk about one other thing that's so great about this. God had caused the king to be favorable to them. He aided, assisted, and strengthened them in this task. Now, if you're an eagle-eyed person or paying attention, you may say, it says king of Assyria. I thought the Persians were in charge. Well, I think the author's doing one, one last little funny thing. 
the very first empire to attack God's people and take away some of God's people into exile were the Assyrians. But the Assyrian empire doesn't exist anymore when this author writes that. Instead, this other king, this Persian king, rules over the territory of Assyria. These authors saying, yes, the Assyrians took some of us away, but they don't exist anymore. And we do. And we're back here where God wants us to be. God used the king to help them, to strengthen them. God can control any authority for his purposes. This is similar to celebrations of joy that occur throughout the Old Testament. These celebrations are appropriate response for God's faithfulness. A very similar Passover happened in the time of Hezekiah. In 2 Chronicles 30, 21, it says, The people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. The Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. This is the same kind of celebration. Now we may wonder, what kinds of things would they sing when they praised God? Well, the book we have in the Bible, the book of Psalms, is the hymn book of God's people. And since they just finished the temple, it really wouldn't surprise me if they sang something like Psalm 100 and said the passage we read, Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Why? For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. If you know Jesus, you're one of my brothers and sisters in faith, how do you praise God for his faithfulness to you? Do you tell others about what God has done for you? Do you tell others, God did this for me this week? This thing was really hard, but I saw God be faithful in this area. Do you tell believers about that? Do you tell non-believers? Do you say, I was struggling with this, but I saw God's faithfulness in this area. And then when we're together, do we sing, do we praise him for his faithfulness? Why don't we do that now? Let's praise God for his faithfulness because he's worthy of that praise.